You're listening to Rock Bottom Radio, broadcasting from deep in the turf net zone. Here's your host, Randy Wilson. Hello and welcome to Rock Bottom Radio, coming to you from Rock Bottom Country Club, deep in the turf net zone. Our special guest today is Mark Hoban of Rivermont fame. Probably better known as the mad scientist of the golf course superintendent world. Okay, before we get to Mark, let's hear from Mama and Lurleen about Vinyl Guard. Hey, Lurleen, you playing 9 or 18 today? No, I just want to hit a bucket of balls. Oh, and I just love how colorful the driving range is. Yep, I had Buddy Vinyl Guard all the range furniture. The targets, the barrels, the bench, even the bag stand. We're testing Vinyl Guard on my fishing pole, too. Everything's just so bright and cheery. The best part is we don't have to constantly paint and replace things anymore. We put pink vinyl guard on a set of flag sticks and put them out on Ladies' Day. You know, it used to be a problem to carry around flag sticks in the ute. It scuffed up the poles and made them look awful. Remember to vinyl guard all of your weather-exposed golf equipment and keep things looking sharp. Hello, Mark. We're glad you could be here. Thanks for having me, Randy. Before we get started, does my hair look all right? Because last time I was here, I was having a really bad hair day. Okay, uh, okay, okay. We'll we'll get hair and makeup in here. Mark, I hear you recently completed some research and have some findings to report. Yes, I've been playing around a little bit with biochar, which is just a burnt wood that has just incredible pore space. And so we've been putting out some trials and seeing some interesting things, uh, disease suppression, as well as some green-up effects in late fall, and it has no nutritional value. And another thing we did this summer with it, we rebuilt some teas, and so I was able to till it in at different rates, and we were getting quite a bit more biomass rapid rooting compared to the checks. And right now, I've seen some drought tolerance uh, where the check was droughting out on a diamond zoysia tea versus the plots where we did put the biochar in there. So just interesting observations at this point, no no really uh, quantifying data. Was there uh, any research on your compost extract? Yeah, I've always wanted to know how good a extract I could make in-house versus the commercial varieties, and I was able to go down to Griffin, Georgia, and work with Dr. Habitalasi, and he was able to plate out my compost extract versus some commercial varieties. And it came out that the CFUs, the colony-forming units, we had 200 million more bacteria colony-forming units and about 58 million more fungi-forming units than the commercial varieties. And I looked at brand-new extract I made and it it takes me 20 minutes to make it and I looked at some that I had made uh, four to six months ago so it does have a shelf life I was pleased to see. I've named it River Juice just to kind of give it give it some flair if you will. River Juice. Okay while we're on the the topic enlighten me here what's the difference between compost tea and extract? Both processes you're extracting off a thermal heated compost or worm compost material into a vat of water, the microbes. So you're using air to blast them off of the compost into the water solution. You're done if you're just creating an extract. If you're creating a tea, then you have to put some food substrates like molasses and fish hydrolysate in the water, very small amounts, and bubble it for 24 to 48 hours, depending on conditions and checking with the microscope, but 
the breeding of these microorganisms takes place usually after the twelfth hour and they can double in populations as little as every twenty minutes so you could do the math in a day and a half you've got trillions and trillions of microorganisms in your solution. Can I use tap water? If you're using city water I would say absolutely not because there's chlorine in it and that's going to knock back your microorganisms so you have to use a dechlorinator or in the case of city water, you can bubble it out by letting it sit around for 24 hours or aerating it to bubble off the chlorine. But the easiest way is just to go ahead and assume it and use a dechlorinator. Kind of like, you know, you did for your aquarium when you were growing up. You put a dechlorinator in it before you introduce fish into it. What I'm really trying to do is breed or extract microbes and build my biology in the soil. And the way I'm focused on it is not a single point source of compost that's only going to give me certain organisms. I'm trying to get thermal compost, vermicompost. I'm, I'm also going in the woods and getting decayed wood material, soil, so that I can extract diversity. And I've had good success with it. The cost is nil. However, I find the superintendents would rather uh, glug and go. They're very happy with just buying product and pouring it in, and I understand that. But I feel like the niche is going to be to the lower 50% of golf courses that really need to help their biology and, and really can't maybe afford some of the commercial products. The way I look at it now is it's a system. The term I like is holistic system that you can't focus on the chemical or physical only, that the biology part of the soil is where we're needing to be. That term holistic, what does that term mean? I guess what I'm trying to describe is we're so focused on what a chemical does and we're paying all these researchers to see the newest, latest, greatest pesticide, how it will get us out of an insect or a disease problem, but we're not focused on what it's doing in the soil biology, what damage it's doing. Uh, some of the new nematicides out are making great claims and they're doing wonderful things to knock back the predator nematodes, the parasitic nematodes, but they say nothing about they've just wiped out all of the beneficial nematodes that are in the soil. And I don't think we're focused enough on what we're doing to the soil biology. I think the chemical companies are doing testing, but they're not talking about it. And we as superintendents are not asking about it. To give you an example of, it's kind of off base, but maybe it'll make the point clear that in agriculture, they found that they could put, say, 50 cattle on, on 100 acres of land and pretty soon the cattle would just eat the candy, leave all the other grasses, but they would eat them down to their, to their dirt and, and they would die. They found now where they call it mob grazing, they'll put 750 tons of cattle on, on a little less than an acre and move them around. The cattle are pooping and peeing and hoof marking and so all of the nutritional value and those hoof prints are filling with water and opening up the soils to the dormant bacteria and fungi that are there, microbes, and they're seeing their soils flourish, the grasses flourish because the cattle have to eat everything because they're so compact, and then they're obviously not going to eat where, where they've defecated, and they just, they're moving the cattle during the day, but they come back to these same pastures four or five months later, and they're just flourishing grasslands. So that's what I'm talking about, a holistic system, as opposed to just focusing on, hey, we need to fertilize this field, we need to reseed this field, and, 
and get the grasses back up. Okay, you mentioned Dr. Uh, Musi Habtasalasi. He's at the Griffin Experiment Station. The training film we did, which is currently on page six of the Rock Bottom vlog, mentioned CFU. How essential is this CFU to what you're doing? Well, it's telling me I have a viable product that I'm applying to the soils, whether I'm applying them dormant CFU, colony-forming units of bacteria or fungi they're able to measure. Now, they're not IDing them. That would be the next step in the lab for him to do DNA testing to see exactly what. But the problem is science only knows 5 to 7% ID on bacteria and fungi. So there's quite a bit out there we, we still don't know or are able to culture out. And they are beneficials in there. So I at least know I have a viable product. I am seeing results. problem with doing research on a golf course is, in the biology, it's what I call you can't do a single variable. You can't put down a compost or an extract or a microbial product and, and do nothing else and leave it fallow and say compare it to a synthetic or inorganic fertilizer. As I said, it's a system and there's so many variables going on in that soil and you have to, to feed your, your microbes uh, what they need to, uh, to get the best benefits out of them. I heard something really strange about somebody putting antimicrobials in the microbials because of it, it was stinking or something to get rid of this. It, aren't we trying to sustain microbials? Yeah, I've had a running battle with a few people for uh, years. They get these microbial products and put them in two and a half gallon jugs as a liquid. Well, the jugs are swelling because you've got this aerobic microbes that are alive. And when you seal them off, when you open it up, sometimes they flip and go anaerobic. They have this smell. So their companies are coming up ways to kill the microbes. So they kill the smell and kill the swelling. So it's kind of like, how does that really work? You're selling a product and destroying all the biology before you give it to the end user. This is off topic, but the other day, Griffin Experiment Station dedicated a turf research facility. Were you down there? I was for the opening ribbon cutting, and you know, what a thrill, because I didn't really know. The University of Georgia's turf research is recognized internationally as one of the leaders in the world, and yet their facility was 75 or 80 years old. They still had some floors that were dirt floors, and these world-renowned researchers are doing this very antiquated equipment. So now they have the number one facility, from my understanding, in the United States. And uh, it was quite a neat thing to go through it and see where they've come and, and the support they've got, not only from our uh, state, but also from the turf industry. So, Mark, what's your latest project? Well, I've always wanted to do honeybees. And my problem was I wasn't comfortable with the modern American methods what I'm looking at is the, uh, the American hives are vertical. They're very thin wood. They're using a lot of pesticides to control varroa mites and hive beetles. They're giving them a lot of sugar water. And the goal, I think, in general is to bother the bees quite a bit and to extract as much honey as you can. And, and I was not happy with that. So I've come across some natural beekeeping methods and teachers that have looked back in history where in Russia, for instance, in the 1800s, the average peasant had one to 4,000 beehives. And these were horizontal hives where you never bothered the queen or the brood. You just looked at the end frames. 
that were much deeper and you could extract honey based on how much they needed to make it through a winter. And that made a lot more sense because you only went into the hives twice a year. Now I've gotten into a bee club to learn about them, Randy, and the beekeepers there, the uh, metro area are saying, no, no, you've got to treat your bees. You, you have to get rid of the varroa mites. But the problem is I kind of look at it a lot like golf courses and all the pesticides, especially fungicides we're using on our turf grasses and all our herbicides. We're finding that we're having resistance with a lot of herbicides, insecticides, and now fungicide resistance. And these pathogens have learned to, we've wiped out whatever, 95%, 99%, the 1% that uh, are virulent are producing strains that are not able to be knocked back with the current litany of pesticides. I'm not sure I know what you mean by bothering the queen. What is that like you leave the seed up? What? <laughs> well, the queen only has a maiden flight for two weeks, and that's the only time she's out of the hive, and she'll have as many as 20 drones inseminator. But then her job is she can lay one to 3,000 eggs a day. And if you've got the vertical hives, you're taking off the boxes and they've made them ultra thin wood so that they're lighter because they can weigh 50, 75 pounds when they're full of honey and brood and you're moving them and checking and so you don't know quite where the queen is and so you're having to look at all the frames and then you're changing the boxes from a lower level to a higher level. So you're kind of like switching their house around uh, on a two or three week basis if you're like most of the beekeepers I know, and that bothers me. You know, another thing they do is they like to keep their bee boxes in the full sun because I say you'll have less hive beetles. Well, you find feral bees that beekeeping's been around for since ancient Egypt 3,000 years ago. Well, you'll find feral bees in the woods. Well, they're not, they're not building their nest in, in the sunshine, you know. So I'm kind of looking at it, what's best for bees? Yes, I'd like to get some honey, but that's not going to be my driving force with the bees. And my intentions are to um, put up swarm traps and catch feral bees and use those as my basis. Sounds like the feral bees would be the troublemakers of the hive. No, they've survived without any uh, help from humans. No pesticides to treat, no uh, sugar water. And the funny thing is, I'm finding out that all the sugar water, it is so sweet that now the bees are skipping some of the nectar plants that aren't high nectar sweetness because the sugar water is so sweet, yet it has no nutritional value. So that means they're not pollinating that particular plant. Is that what you're saying? Not pollinating that plant or... They're becoming uh, diabetic. Um, well... No. Okay, one more <laughs> bee question. I noticed you have some paperwork saying that there's neonicotinoids in a high percentage in all the bees. Yeah, this just came out this week where scientists went around the world testing different honey. And they found out on average that 75% of the honey had uh, neonicotinoids. That's how I pronounce it, an insecticide in it, in the honey. Uh, in the United States, it was up to 86% of all the honey. And... So those of us eating that honey are consuming, we, we could just go ahead and start smoking cigarettes then? Yeah, uh, exactly. Obviously, the chemical companies are going to say, well, it's, the threshold is much lower than is unsafe in humans. But I'm, I'm sure you'll find it in our drinking water as well. 
just like you are going to find other herbicides. That's a very brand new study that just came out, and that's why I kind of want to go the other way. I think golf courses are the good guys. I think that going the natural method on the horizontal hives, I'm not doing it yet because I put out my swarm traps to capture feral bees or swarms too late. I didn't realize the flow for our area was nectar flow was March and April. So I went ahead and bought what is a nucleus of bees and to learn about them. And so I've got the vertical and I am feeding them sugar water because they wouldn't make it through the winter otherwise. If they do make it through the winter, I'm going to go ahead and go horizontal and put out my swarm traps in early February. One of the, the things that the beekeepers keep telling me is, well, if you don't treat and you don't give them sugar water, they're not going to make it through winter. And that bothers me a lot because it's like my little animal herd. I'm already digging on them and you can walk right up without a bee suit on and just love watching them work. But I've kind of come to the conclusion I'm going to let them die if they can't make it through the winter and start over because I don't want to take a weak colony and get them through winter and then the queen is passing on genetics of inferior type bees. So that's why I really want to capture the feral bees. And from the people that are doing this, their success rate has been about 50% of their swarm traps they've caught hives of bees in. So that's where I'm at with it all and I've, I'm just committing to giving them sugar because I, they don't have the honey to make it through winter. But next year I plan to just to do it natural. So I hear you've been fooling around with the Air 2 G2 injection theory. What is that? Well, I've gotten with the Air 2 people and also a guy that's come up with an injector for the Air 2 G2. And basically, it's just an apparatus that will inject liquids into the probes, the three probes that go down at 7 and 12 inches and inject an air blast. He's calibrated it where it'll inject, in between the air blasts, it'll inject a liquid solution. And so we are playing around with some microbial products on it, and there's only one of these, and I'm going to be getting it in a couple of weeks to be able to have it for three or four weeks and play with some of the things that I'm doing. So it's baby steps, but in the real world, they've already seen some uh, reductions in biocarbonates and black layer with some of the injection, but they also with just the air, because it's an air exchange down there where you might have trapped CO2. And it's a fascinating piece of equipment that I really think it's going to be a game changer. And, and it has for ones that have bought into it so far. Okay, I know you're forgetting something. What, what else are you into? Well, some of the things I'm working on this year, working with somebody out of Asia, a microbial group, and some out of the southeast and some out of California, putting out some microbial test plots. And the neat thing is I'm able to do it in my Bermuda Fairway, my Zoysia Tea, and my Ultra Dwarf Green. And the big deal is, all right, harvest the data and check out the biomass. And how I do that is just wash off the plugs dry them out and sift off the remaining soil off of it and weigh them out, and that's an accurate test to see which products are producing. And I have seen as much as 27% leap in biomass with one of the products. And I've been talking with the company, and now they're scientists and just learning quite a bit, and they are too. And so I'm really seeing some valuable things that we're already incorporating into all of our greens because on ultra dwarfs, you just don't have a deep root system and anything to get more biomass. 
Interesting though, it's all below deck. You don't see it on top. I don't see any greener turf or denser turf, but I am seeing that on the bottom. And, and maybe coming out of winter, we might see out of winter stress and traffic stress, maybe I'll see some things down the road. In the anything new category, what's next? We cut down a lot of trees, and I'm going to get some fresh oak looms and bore some holes and, and inoculate them with some mushroom spores. So we're going to grow for our restaurant up at the clubhouse some different mushrooms. Uh, we're going to start off with shiitake and maybe one or two others. I'm, I'm not sure, but we're going to inoculate these logs and see what we can do. Just have fun with it. It just seems like a natural fit, not a stressful thing to put them out there and leave them in the shade and water them every now and then. I'm somewhat suspicious when I hear someone say they're going to have fun with mushrooms. Before I forget, you had mentioned earlier Randy Nichols and his Biomoss. Yeah, Biomoss. I was working with Randy for, for years with it on turf and seeing great biomass differences from my checks. In, even in my zoysia grasses, I compare it to some ways to Primo underground. It just stacks up, it seems like, the rhizomes and much more root hairs and in density of root mass coming out and branching. So I've kind of quit my testing because I saw the benefits and started using it everywhere. But Randy has gone in and finally paying researchers to look at it in ag products, and he just sent me the research. And he was showing just these massive increase in flowering and tomato production, tomato corn and cucumbers he's working on, but he's also seen in cotton. So if Randy's smart, he'll just forget the turf market and, and go straight into ag because of the results he's getting with a semi-organic product that has a lot of amino acids and proteins and, and it is working with the soil biology. And when you said this biomass was increasing your root mass, was that on greens? Greens, yes. Mainly greens, but I also saw it on teas. And when I say biomass, I think it's too hard to shave off the grass top uh, at the crown and measure just the root weights. I feel like you can skew that because you're measuring everything into the hundredth place in grams, and it's just easier and more accurate, I feel, is to, to measure all the biomass, top and bottom. Now, I don't know what it means, but I'm always hearing you use the term microbials. Well, it's just to describe that underground neighborhood of bacteria, fungi, billions and billions of these microorganisms underground that are uh, decomposers and are able to mine out nutrients that are not able to be picked up by a plant. plant can't extract certain things because they're tied up in, uh, in soils, and the microorganisms can break down these soils and make them plant available. So it's a system that you've got to figure out. It's not just apply a chemical and get a reaction to your turf. So you're, you're using all the biology in the soil to enhance it so that your plant is able to draw out these nutrients. And it puts back, and it's putting back carbon into the soil, which is a very good thing. Uh, you know, we keep hearing that we have too much carbon in the air. And so I think, again, turf can be one of the good guys by sequestering carbon from the air. Okay, Mark, in our um, skeletal golf theory, we aim a lot at the lower budget superintendent. Does, does any of this you're working on have any effect on them? I think it all does, Randy. I mean, from the native grasses on, it's a way of using less inputs, which every low-end, middle-end golf course is striving to achieve. They don't have the dollars to, to put out there. So if you can lower your inputs and focus on your tees, greens, and fairways with the monies you do have, I, I think it's a win-win for the golfer and, uh, 
and the superintendent. The thing is, it's not a light switch going this approach. It's a three-year process to really see the gain. I started out with the compost teas and I saw major dollar savings the first year. Maybe it was just, you know, the type of weather we had, but you know, I've continued on with it now four or five years and I'm just seeing the, the added value every year. All right, Mark, we're certainly glad you came by Rock Bottom to visit. Before you leave, if you want to grab your clubs and get out there and play, go right ahead. Anything else before we leave? Well, I'd just like to say that we're going to have on um, March 6th a little field day and lecture by Paige Embry, wrote a book on pollinator bees, and she's visited our course and looked at all the pollinator gardens we had, and her comment was that in an urban setting, she's never seen so much diversity of life with bees and moths and birds and butterflies, and I thought that was pretty cool. And she's going to start a book tour in Atlanta and, and give a little talk. And we're going to invite the public and obviously our members and neighborhoods. And I thought, well, I'll just roll it into some type of a little bit of a field day and maybe look at some of the things we're doing that I've mentioned here. Sounds pretty interesting. Thanks for coming by. You're welcome. Is my hair all right? You've been listening to Rock Bottom Radio, broadcasting from deep in the turf net zone. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher for future episodes. 